Hello, my friends. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's good to be with you. It's Tuesday, April 26th, 2016. I'm coming to you from Boulder, Colorado, where I am here, as always, with our Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. Hey. Hey, Brett. What's up? Well, you were playing Prince before we came on. Yeah. Yeah, well... uh... Farewell to Prince. Farewell to Prince. Yeah. You liked him. I wasn't a diehard Prince fan, but I definitely thought that he was pretty brilliant um, as far as being a songwriter and just in general, like for our culture. You know, he was such a, um, the avant-garde. Yeah. I appreciated him more for that. I I can't say I was a fan. I didn't get into his music. I, I just, you know, didn't attract me that much, but... I, I was reading about him, of course, and we all sort of appreciate these people, you know, uh, after, after, I mean, I guess that's true of all of us. We get extra appreciated once we're gone. Uh, but there was a wonderful tribute by the music writer Carl Wilson and Slate, and I, I just copied a couple paragraphs. I thought it was interesting, especially from an integral perspective. And he writes, when Prince emerged in the late 1970s, few people were talking about defying the binary, which is a new thing that people talk about, which is actually deeply integral in itself, defying the binary in the manner that people do now in 2016 around trans issues. But Prince, and by that he's meaning transsexual issues, uh, he writes, but Prince embodied the concept of defying the binary. He was a sexual revolutionary who nearly on first sight prompted the eminent Village Voice rock critic Robert Christgau to write in 1980 that, quote, Mick Jagger should fold up his penis and go home. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> wow. And then he goes on to write, he says, as Prince sang in Controversy, his song, he luxuriated in not conforming to any easy classification as male or female, black or white, straight or gay, And as his career developed, we might also add secular or sacred, fanatically insular or generously outreaching, commercial or uncommercial, keenly knowing or compulsively chaotic. In every zone, as Bowie had done the decade before, Prince queered the pitch. I love that. Prince queered the pitch. That's great. Majestically, neither red nor blue, but purple. Isn't that great? Yeah. And, you know, it's a, just so wonderful to read such brilliant writing. And, uh, and again, farewell to Prince, and thank you for your wonderful contribution. All right. So tonight on the Daily Evolver, we're going to be a little more international in scope. I think we could all use a little break from American politics particularly as Donald Trump (laughs) racks up another five state wins tonight. Oh, dear God. Let's change the subject. Okay. Yes. Tonight, we are going to do two things, two two big stories in a way. The first is we're going to look at that beautiful and mysterious desert kingdom of our Arab frenemy, Saudi Arabia, where President Obama spent several days last week. And in an integral nutshell, the Saudis 
are in a struggle between orange consciousness, freedom, science, progress, that's modern consciousness, and the struggles with their red consciousness, the ethnocentrism, the patriarchy, the jihad. You know, It's a country that really spans the developmental scale in a way almost like none other. Uh, so we'll look at that. And then we're also going to hear from our special guest tonight, Ben Segante in Budapest. And Bense is spearheading the upcoming Integral European Conference, which will be held at Lake Balaton in Hungary starting next week. And this year, the conference is dedicated to addressing really a similar clash of developmental levels, in a sense, that we see in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but this is the, you know, this migrant crisis where the countries of Europe are contending with all of the uh, refugees from particularly Syria. And that's a huge problem that is very challenging. And, and uh, I think integral theory has you know, some helpful insight. And so Bense and I will talk about that later in the show. All right. Before we do that, I'd like to thank Integral Life, as always. Corey DeVos, you're a champ. David Reardon, all of the gang, uh, for sponsoring the Daily Evolver Live all these years for giving us a live home on Integral Radio. And thank you all who are tuning in live here tonight in this moment, uh, in non-local space, in the global brain. It's good to feel you with us always. Let's take a look at this situation in Saudi Arabia. As I said, President Obama was there last week. It was his fourth visit to the country more than any other sitting president, which gives you some idea of the importance that Obama gives Saudi Arabia uh, and a country that he's having, you know, uh, notoriously bad relationships with uh, in the last few years. And he referred to a couple weeks ago as our, quote, so-called ally and as free riders in terms of providing for their own security. And he's clearly trying to reset the relationship with that country. And this all happened during a, a, a sort of a coincidental acute crisis where um, the uh, Saudi involvement in the 9-11 attacks were really coming to the fore. Uh, and that's caused because there is a controversy around whether American intelligence officials ought to declassify this infamous 28 pages of the 9-11 report, which for the last 13 years has literally been locked in a vault. I mean, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. I don't think it's a conspiracy. It's, it's all out in the open. But, you know, it was seen by very few people, by uh, select senators and committees and so forth. And by all account, it proves the existence of a Saudi support network for the 9-11 hijackers. And of course, we already know that 15 of the 19 9-11 attackers were citizens of Saudi Arabia. So this leads back to um, institutions in Saudi Arabia, particularly this Wahhabi religious structure that is the underlying moral, uh, spiritual uh, institution in the country. And as I said, it's a really fascinating, you know, culture consciousness 
melange that is happening in Saudi Arabia. First of all, if you look historically at the country, uh, the Saudi Peninsula was for thousands of years populated by the Bedouin uh, nomads, which in Arabic means desert dwellers. They had herds of goats and camels. And like all nomads, they have the consciousness, the center of gravity, of roughly red. That means they go a little bit magenta tribal. They go a little bit amber traditional. But most of their lines of development are centered around red. And so that means power gods, uh, nature mysticism, uh, trial by ordeals. They have a famous trial in the Bedouin tradition where the, uh, if, if two people accuse each other of some misdeed, they actually light a fire, put a sword in the fire until it's red hot. And the person who is accused and the accuser, in order to prove their innocence, place their tongue on the um, sword. And whoever is not injured by this act is innocent. Now, what they find is it's really, you know, these, these pre-modern and even pre-traditional tribal customs are really interesting in that they do set up this sort of um, extreme um, physical ordeal, a trial by fire, literally, in this case, uh, because most people in the final analysis will either admit their guilt or innocence before they have to lay their tongue on the metal. But that's very typical of that sort of thing. And so we see the residuals of this in the brutal legal system, the Sharia system that is still in place in Saudi Arabia, which we'll look at in a little bit of detail in a minute. But the basic center of gravity of red is conflict, is some sort of war. When you start mixing it with monotheism and traditionalism, that amber stage, it becomes holy war, which is a you know particularly sort of sour spot in history because you get the sort of power of the traditional stage, which is far more powerful than a tribal stage or you know, a warrior stage, actually. But you still get that sort of um, intrinsically warlike nature. Uh, and it's true for the culture, and it's true for individuals. And, and we can feel it in our own red strata. You know, part of integral theory is that when we're looking at this in other people, we also want to find it in ourselves. And find it in other people in our lives. And we all know people who operate, often at least, in, in a center of gravity of red, where if you're not fighting, you're not doing your job. You're not, you're, if you're not fighting, you're losing. You know, nothing else makes sense, really, at this stage. And, you know, I, <laughs> I promised I wouldn't bring him up, but Donald Trump is a perfect example of this in that he just fights everyone. That's what he does. Uh, when he wakes up in the morning and through the day and late at night when he's tweeting. And, you know, fortunately, he's embedded in an orange and green culture, a modern culture, postmodern culture here in America and the Western civilized world. So his fighting is contextualized. It's held in this bigger, more civilized system, including within himself, Donald Trump. And so, you know, his fighting... <laughs> 
is, as I said, reduced to tweeted insults <laughs> in the middle of the night. We'll talk more about Donald Trump at another show. But we want to see that. And, and what's interesting is to see, excuse me, to see what red is when it is sort of even the ceiling of what the culture is able to do, to see what indigenous red is like when there's no modern or postmodern to sort of contextualize it and hold it in. And so what you get is a society that is um, organized around honor codes. And an honor co code doesn't mean that people act as we understand the term honorably. That definition of honor is really amber. It's traditional. That means when you're good, you play by the rules, you're an honorable person. No, that's not what we're talking about. That's later in development. But what we're talking about with the red honor code is that you must always be seen as strong and you must always have the respect of others. And, you know, as we feel into the red strata in our own lives, that's a powerful thing. You know, we do want to have the respect of others. It's really important how we're seen by others. It's, it's you know, people lay awake at night about perceived insults. And there's something functional about that. We want to have a powerful red that says, I make this stake. I make this claim. This is who I am. I am powerful. Look at me. Pay attention to me. Account for me. Take, you know, uh, deal with me. And that is what the center of gravity of a whole culture can be. I was sort of trying to get a feel for this. So I was looking at some Bedouin stories and poetry, and, and it's really interesting. I'll, I'll read a little bit of it. You see that in red culture, it's actually sort of encouraged. It, it's, it, it, it's the way it is, is that you look after yourself first. It's weird in a way. It's a tough culture, and it's, it's odd to those of us who are living in the modern world where, you know, we emphasize fairness and compassion and, and you know, the golden rule and even loving our enemy, and, you know, at least as a, as a, as a goal or as an ideal. And that's not what we're talking about in this sort of day-to-day -day reality of red, where it's a daily struggle to survive among tough people in a tough neighborhood and a tough land, this desert, you know. And so one of the most famous Bedouin slogans is this, I against my brother, I and my brother against my cousin, I, my brother, and my cousin against the stranger. And I love that first line. It says a lot. I against my brother. Okay, you know, me, my brother, and my cousin will be united against the stranger. Okay, if we don't have the stranger, then it's going to be me and my brother against my cousin. And if we don't have my cousin, then it's going to be me against my brother. And just let that sink in. That's really, you know, so alien to our more civilized sensibilities that come on, start coming online really with, you know, the golden rule and that sort of thing and monotheism and, 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 and you know, the amber traditional stage. But <clears throat> this is pre that. And here's from uh, a couple stanzas from a poem by the 6th century Bedouin poet Labid. 
and I love this too. He says, And he who shows kindness to one not deserving it, his praise is unworthy, and there will be reproach against him, and he will repent of having shown kindness. And he who is always seeking to bear the burdens of other people and does not refuse them will one day be debased and will repent of his kindness. There you go, the anti-kindness ethic. Next, on the other hand, you don't want to be a free rider. You don't want to be on the other side of that equation. And uh, Labide writes, He who does not cease asking people to carry him and does not make himself independent of them, even for one day of time, he will be regarded with disgust. So you can't ask people to carry you or take yourself or, or, or be dependent on other people. Uh, they also talk about how to be a supplicant, how to be servile. He writes, He who rebels against the butt end of the spear, then verily he will have to obey the spear points joined to every long spear shaft. So if you don't, you know, keep moving with the butt end of the spear, you're going to have the sharp end. And then the final stanza is, um, oh yeah, he who is a nomad should consider his friend an enemy, and he who does not respect himself will not be respected, and he who does not dominate the people will be dominated. Yeah. So that is, you know, the tradition of the Bedouins. And of course, there's nothing particularly unique about this. This is red culture in every, you know, every culture has a red stage, and it's something like that. In the developed world, in the Western world particularly, um, we went through that stage a thousand years ago or more. But the Saudis were in that stage a hundred years ago, you know. So they haven't had time. They've made a lot of changes in the exterior quadrants, in the upper right and the upper, well, particularly the lower right quadrants. That is their technology and their, you know, cities and so forth. But you can't make those kinds of changes in a culture in a hundred years, you know. So the upper left, individual consciousness is still tied to that in a way that we have a hard time understanding, and collective consciousness too. So, you know, what happened with the Saudis, well, you know, first of all, they were stationarized, I think was the word I read, by the Ottoman Empire in 1850s, um, so what, 150-some years ago. And that's where they were uh, forbidden to be nomads, and, and, and they had to settle. And then... You know, on through modernization, which hit like a sledgehammer in the mid-1930s with the discovery that the desert kingdom was sitting on an ocean of oil. And that began a long era of, you know, colonization and this oft-told story of conquest or deals being made between modern and pre-modern cultures, where... <clears throat> the modern cultures come in for the resources. You know, we needed the oil because we had this industrial thing going uh, in the, you know, lower right. And then the, the, the pre-modern culture. So, you know, it's, it's basically we made uh, deals with the warlords and the kings, and that's what you get. And 
And that has gone on for a long time, where we protect them, and they give us the oil. And not only do we get the oil, but we also, particularly in America, have gotten many hundreds of billions of dollars in arms sales. Um, uh, So it's been quite profitable for us on that side of the street, too. Uh, Saudi Arabia spends, it's it's the third highest uh, budget for military in the world after the United States and China. They, they pay more for military than, um, than the Chinese do and the Russians. I mean, sorry, than the Russians do and the, and the UK. And it's the highest by far per capita of any country in the world. And we're largely the beneficiaries of that. But, you know, that's changed because the geopolitics have changed. Uh, 9-11, uh, this, uh, this pernicious Wahhabi ideology that has been exported. Uh, as they say, the second largest export after oil for Saudi Arabia is Wahhabism. And that's this, you know, basically desert version of a power god who's fighting everybody. So anyway, you have this country that's in a way not only modernized, but they have leapfrogged because of this huge economic wealth. You know, the, the economic line of development just went off the charts while everything else sort of, you know, lags behind. And so they become the richest people per capita on the planet. So they could bring in the best architects and construction, and, and, and they did. They built, built these beautiful cities. They travel the world. They educate their children in private schools in Switzerland. They have magnificent palaces, particularly, the, the, of course, the ruling class. If you ever want to see what pre-modern consciousness builds when it has unlimited modern money, Google Donald Trump's Trump Tower penthouse. No, just kidding. Actually, that will work. <laughs> that will you'll you'll see what pre-modern consciousness with unlimited money the, the builds, but no, you Google Saudi palaces. It's amazing. You see these palatial estates, uh, many of them quite beautiful in that sort of pre-modern aesthetic of grandiosity. Look at me, marble, gold, every surface a work of art, artificial lakes, fountains, gardens. And then you see these pictures with, you know, in the grand drive at the front of the house, the prince and his entourage standing there with a fleet of Bentleys and Lamborghinis. And, you know, it's something. It's what money will buy. But, you know, when it comes to those Bentleys and Lamborghinis, God forbid women get behind the wheel. I mean, actually, women are behind the wall. Uh, there was certain none of the, no women in those pictures, uh, and and if you want to get down to the personal, they're behind the veil, and it's really something, and and yet this is where you have this astonishing uh, disconnect, differentiation between progress in the exteriors, money, uh, stuff, technology. You know they can buy anything in the world, and yet a pre-modern. Uh, morality. And so, you know, women in this, in, in red Bedouin culture, you know, when you can't really forget trust in the stranger, of course you can't trust the stranger. You're not sure you can trust your cousin and you hope you can trust your brother. But 
basically you got to protect your woman. And to do that, you keep them away and you shroud them so people can't see them, men can't see them. And that veil is protection for them. And, and you know, in, in red culture, men are stallions. We can't be expected to contain ourselves around a beautiful woman. You know, we don't have that structure of consciousness online yet. And so, you know, this is, a, you know, a glimpse into what patriarchy really is. And, you know, and, and there's a myth, as particularly in sort of the green meme, there's a myth about patriarchy that, is, that it's a system of male domination supported by men against women. It's not that. The reality is patriarchy is a system of male domination. Yes, that part is true. But it's supported by both men and women in the culture. And, you know, uh, I, I, we, we published uh, maybe a year or so ago on the Daily Evolver, I'm sure it's still there, these uh, modern uh, communications support in Saudi Arabia and in the Emirates supporting the wearing of the veil. And these very slick kind of Madison Avenue kind of billboards. And the one that stick in, sticks in my mind shows this, it's a big billboard, and it shows this beautiful photograph of a stick of butter with a bit of the foil wrapping peeled back in the corner. And there's flies buzzing around where it's peeled back. The headline of the billboard is, Veil is Purity. And that's still a view supported by many women, although fewer and fewer. Because, you know, at this point, Saudi Arabia itself is a little bit like the country version of Donald Trump. Yes, it has sort of a red morality still, or, or a holy warrior, or traditional, you know, sort of that weird amber, uh, uh, red amber morality. But it's contextualized. It's surrounded by a world that it's dealing with that is orange and green, that's modern and postmodern. And so they're kind of trying to move it along. One of the things that's so difficult about dealing with Saudi Arabia is their Sharia law. There was 144 public beheadings in 2015, last year. Public beheadings, often for apostasy, which is leaving the religion. Um, they flog people. Uh, they have, have, have assured the United Nations and Amnesty International that their flogging is quote, administered under full medical, judicial, and administrative supervision. But, you know, that is sort of a weird, nauseating, you know, um, uh, conflation of orange and, and red. Uh, and, and, and even stoning. Last year, a Sri Lankan maid was convicted of adultery and was sentenced to stoning, which they hadn't really done stoning since 1990s. But uh, they were going to do it. And that was commuted under international pressure. And this is how, you know, things change. But they're really, when they're doing public beheadings, they're, you know, they're back in the, uh, those earlier stages, uh, is what we want to say here. So anyway, I do want to look a little bit at the plus side. Um, because they know their problems. Uh, like I said, these are people, particularly the elites, who have traveled the world. They have, you know, they 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 take off the hajib when they go to Paris. They drink. 
they partake in 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 Western culture. They have the internet. Um, it's probably impossible to overestimate the power of the internet. You know, they're basically all of a sudden, at least in terms of their subtle bodies, in terms of their thinking, and in terms of their even communication, they're with the mainstream world when they have the internet. And um, so there's a couple things that are really worth noting about, you know, what are we to do? What's, you know, what's going to happen to this culture? How's, what's the way forward? And one is there was an announcement yesterday called, uh, it was Saudi Vision 2030. It's an economic reform plan that was announced by the deputy crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And he's the 30-year-old son of the new king, Salman. And he's in contention to be the next king. And this Saudi Vision 2030 is billed as the country's most extensive economic shakeup in decades. And basically, it's a plan to largely privatize the economy. And let's just keep in mind that when we talk about privatizing in Saudi Arabia, we're not talking about privatizing what is already publicly owned, like uh, American Social Security government owned. Uh, we're talking about what was owned by, well, the government still, but in this case, it's the royal family, the El Sads, the monarchy. And so they'll be selling off like part of Aramco, the, the, the big oil company, and other family-owned businesses to the private sector, which is progress. That's a, that's a move in, into modernity. And they have a plan to become basically a giant international investment bank, buying and selling assets throughout the world. And they want to build tourism, and they, <laughs> they want to stop the floggings and beheadings so that the tourists will come. The other thing that I think is interesting is uh, this uh, King Abdullah University, which was a pet project of the late king, the last king, Abdullah. And it's this university that is sort of off by itself on, I forget, I think it's, is it the Red Sea? Um, but it's 14 square miles of modernity and even post-modernity in the middle of this, you know, Saudi kingdom. And it's a research and technology park, huge university. Uh, it's the largest LEED certified, which is that leadership in energy and environmental design uh, cer certification, big green building cer certification. It's the largest a lead certified campus in the world, has a full marine sanctuary. It's focused on um, uh, clean combustion, desert agriculture, Red Sea science and engineering, social alternative energy, or, or solar and alternative energy science, water desalinization, that sort of thing. It's mixed gender, men and women go. There are students from all over the world. The Saudis are the third largest group. And get this, there's no religious police, women are not re required to wear the veil, and women can drive. So, you know, it's interesting to just put this little tail on the dog here that will, in my view, begin to start wagging the dog. Uh, this is, you know, a little piece of modernity in the middle of everything, and there's just a, sort of a morphogenic field that will permeate. Uh, and I think that's the idea. I think that's the um, the um, the goal of the whole thing. And yeah, I do want to say that when I think about you know solving the problems of Saudi Arabia, that it's not about 
problem solving as much as it is about evolving and creating the new next thing. And that's how the problems are solved. I, I got a wonderful email from one of my listeners, Tom Albertson. And you know, I've been sort of stewing around with this whole idea of why am I bored with problem solving? Why, when people talk about problem solving, do I get uninterested? And he wrote to me, he said, uh, to put it in integral speak, problem solving is squarely a mechanistic industrial first-tier paradigm. Problem solving is about lack and deficiencies. He says, instead of problem solving, we need to think about creating. Creating, in effect, is a second-tier paradigm whose goal is to permeate and promote the health of the entire spiral. So, in the last line is, creating transcends and includes problem solving. And then he sent me a bunch of stuff, which I still haven't read and I'm going to, but I really think he's on to something. And I think that this is going to be a marker of how we need to think about things, growing instead of fixing. So I appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much, Tom. I have the smartest listeners. Thank you for being in touch. And by the way, you can send me emails at jeff at dailyevolver.com. And you can leave me voicemails at dailyevolver.com. You go to the site and you'll see be this orange uh, button that says speak pipe. And you can leave me messages. And sometimes I play them on the show and I get back to you. And sometimes I do. And sometimes I don't. There's a lot of them, but I love them. So send them on. I used to have a teacher, Jeff, that used to talk about the difference between a psycho-mental approach, which she said was always trying to fix problems, yeah, versus a different approach that was actually asking what can i create with this yeah you know yeah when i look back now it seems it seems integral to me although yeah. she didn't have that language yeah i agree and i'm 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 just beginning to feel my way into that and i i think there's something really uh, powerful and fruitful there yeah. yeah that's cool all right well then let's turn our attention to really it's tied in the sense that you know we see this clash of civilizations happening in Europe, where we have these refugees who are coming in from Syria, you know, they're, you know, when you come from a war zone, Jesus, you're coming actually from a, a you know, almost an indigenous stage of development, at least in, in terms of the short term. But these people are coming uh, into, you know, developed countries in Europe and in numbers that are freaking people out. And so... It's really, talk about a wicked problem, a problem really defies solutions. Um, this, is, this is one of them. And this is the theme of the new uh, upcoming Integral European Conference, which is, as I said, just one of the most magnificent, magnificent events in the integral world. Uh, it's produced by Ben Sagante and Dennis Whitrock and their team, and they did it one two years ago in Budapest. And this one coming up is in, a, in a, this beautiful resort about an hour from Budapest. And it's a truly international scene uh, with, you know, several hundred integralists getting together. And, um, and I really want to make sure you know what's going on. Uh, and actually, there's still time to go if you're so inclined. It starts next week. And uh, I talked to Ben Sagante Earlier today, it's because I think it's three o'clock in the morning there now, so doing it live didn't seem to make sense to him at least. 
Um, so we I actually had, <clears throat> had a talk a couple hours ago. And uh, Brett, I think, what do you have, 15 minutes? Uh, it's about 18. 18 minutes. Okay, cool. Yeah, so this is my conversation with Bense about the Integral European Conference. And um, I encourage you to listen and uh, get a sense of what's really in the cutting edge of you know, applying integral thinking in a group to a really intractable problem. And here's Ben Say. Hello? Hey, Ben Say. Hey, Jeff. How you doing tonight, my friend? I'm very good. How are you? I'm doing great. Okay. Good to talk to you. Yeah, totally. How is beautiful Budapest this evening? It's blossoming. Is full, it? Yeah, full spring. Uh, I remember it fondly. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank yeah. you so much for joining me and my listeners tonight as you prepare for the second Integral European Conference, which this year will be held at the Lake Balaton in Hungary, starting exactly. next week. Yeah. Yes. And I remember the first one in Budapest two years ago as one of the greatest events ever, really, in the integral world. But I don't think any of us realized the challenges that Europe was about to face. So I think we're all really interested in hearing what you have planned this year. Yes, you are right. In 2014, in May, when the first Integral European Conference took place, uh, we didn't have the crisis that we have now in Europe. So the whole unfolding of the migrant refugee crisis basically started after that. And uh, I remember, you know, seeing in the news that some migrants from Syria are coming to Europe, but it wasn't big, like it was, you know, business as usual, so to say, in terms of the amount of migration Europe receives usually. But around the spring or summer of 2015, you know, suddenly we realized that, that this is something else happening here. And the, the, the situation that we see now uh, as the refugee migrant crisis uh, basically started at that time, at least for us, for ordinary people, uh, it gained uh, the awareness at that time. Yeah. And I think one of the great things about what you're doing is bringing integral thinking to this. Um, you know, integral theory gives us such a powerful lens for understanding the multiple dimensions of what's going on. And I think as a result, it actually gives us a better chance of being helpful. And I know yes. you have, you know, a whole process planned around this. And maybe you could share a little bit about, about it with us. Yes, the process that you are referring to uh, is called the International Constellation Process, which will take place next week on uh, Friday evening. The conference starts uh, on the pre-conf is Wednesday, Thursday of the conf is Thursday. So we are already in the middle of the conference on Friday and in the evening from 7 to 10, we are going to constellate all this. That means that we are going to invite all the countries that are present in the room, uh, European countries and non-European countries as well, to share uh, their experiences and uh, because it's a European conference, the main uh, main focus is now the European situation. You know, so all the European countries will be uh, intensively invited to share their experiences, and non-Europeans will invited to share how they see it from the external, you know, outside of Europe, and what do they experience in their countries. Now, this is uh, 
this is this has two sides. So we are going to work with the political situation, how people see it from their lens. And we are going to work with the internal situation. How do you, as a personal self, experience this? So we are going to use all of the quadrants, needless to say, the, the right quadrants and the left quadrants. So as much emphasis and sharing will go to how is Bensa or Jeff, you know, or, or Susan uh, is reacting to the migrant situation? Do you have fear? Are you supportive? Are you proud that your country is green and a migrant refugee crisis basically started after that? And uh, I remember, you know, seeing in the news that some migrants from Syria are coming to Europe, but it wasn't big. Like it was, you know, business as usual, so to say, in terms of the amount of migration Europe receives usually. But around the spring or summer of 2015, you know, suddenly we realized that, that this is something else happening here. And the, the, the situation that we see now uh, as the refugee migrant crisis uh, basically started at that time, at least for us, for ordinary people. Uh, it gained uh, the awareness at that time. Yeah. And I think one of the great things about what you're doing is bringing integral thinking to this. Um, you know, integral theory gives us such a powerful lens for understanding the multiple dimensions of what's going on. And I think as a result, it actually gives us a better chance of being helpful. And I know yes. you have, you know, a whole process planned around this. And maybe you could share a little bit about, about it with us. Yes, the process that you are referring to uh, is called the International Constellation Process, which will take place next week on uh, Friday evening. The conference starts uh, on the pre-conf is Wednesday, first day of the conf is Thursday. So we are already in the middle of the conference on Friday and in the evening from 7 to 10, we are going to constellate all this. That means that we are going to invite all the countries that are present in the room, uh, European countries and non-European countries as well, to share uh, their experiences. And uh, because <coughs> it's a European conference, the main uh, main focus is now the European situation. You know, so all the European countries will be uh, intensively invited to share their experiences. And non-Europeans will invite you to share how they see it from the external, you know, outside of Europe, and what do they experience in their countries. Now, this is uh, this is this has two sides. So we are going to work with the political situation, how people see it from their lens, and we are going to work with the internal situation. How do you, as a personal self, experience this? So we are going to use all of the quadrants, needless to say, the, the right quadrants and the left quadrants. So as much emphasis and sharing will go to how is Bensa or Jeff, you know, or, or Susan uh, is reacting to the migrant situation. Do you have fear? Are you supportive? Are you proud that your country is green? <clears throat> and we really don't. Do you, know, do you know how I know this? Because when I start to conversate with other country members in Europe, listening how they see what's going on in their countries uh, I hear new stories yeah I hear I hear stories that are obvious for them but I never saw it on TV I never read it in a lonely planet or any book so 
I have a, a, a sharp and clear kind of insight that we need to talk each other. We need to listen to each other. Yeah. Well, and I think that one of the great things about this conference is, you know, the, the, the level of consciousness of the people who attend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people who are, you know, functionally integral or, or working on it at least, mm-hmm. um, have a capacity to see and be seen mm-hmm. in a way that has an emergent quality to it. And if Ken Wilber's right about every thought and every conversation being, you know, a real thing, something that is actually in, you know, in the left-hand quadrants, it, it cuts the groove, it helps bring wisdom to the world space, then that's an achievement, you know, mm. that I think is really at the cutting edge. So, you know, Godspeed, yes. my friend. Yes, I completely agree. By the way, Ken is also preparing uh, a long uh, video message where he analyzes the European situation. And uh, it's just, just mind-blowing. Ken just came out with a new piece, basically. Wonderful. Very challenging, actually, to listen. It's uh, not just stroking us, but also hitting us. So it's kind of a real wow. you know, download. Look forward to that. And so why don't you tell us uh, who else you have um, attending and, and, and how it's looking and what you're yeah. going to be doing, what else? And just give us a little sense of the feel of the event. Yeah, so basically, uh, there is 150 presenters or contributors coming. Wow. And uh, the, the count of the countries as for today is 36. So today we have 36 country members uh, coming. And uh, probably maybe 60, 70% is European countries of the 36. And maybe the 30% is, is, is US, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Um, somebody comes from one of the islands close, close to Madagascar. So, so re- really we feel that this is a global conference. Just seeing the country list, it doesn't feel like European conference. It feels like global conference. Yeah. So, so I usually say it's a, it's a global integral conference with a European focus. Yes. You know, Wonderful. That's, that's more, more true to what it is. And we, we have 150 contributors and approximately 50% of the contributions are uh, TED style um, talks. So 20 minute presentations. Almost nobody have, has longer than that. So we keep it short and concise and we give a lot of room of uh, dialogue and, and creative emergence in the dialogue space. And, and all this kind of mental uh, lecturing, dialoguing is 50% of the conference. The other 50%, the afternoons and the evenings, are experiential transformative workshops and in the evenings, uh, community events when the community have a, has a chance to, to basically f- socialize with each other. Yeah. We, we discovered that socializing is one of the best part of these conferences so instead of uh, filling the evenings with other programs where people have to uh, kind of gaze the stage, we give uh, people excuses, you know, and, 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 and uh, events how to connect and share with each other in a mass scale. Well, I remember one of, well, actually a couple of the most magical nights of my life were wow. at the conference two years ago, one being the opening night dinner on a barge going through the Danube you know, which cuts through Budapest, which is, you know, one of the most exquisite capitals in, in the world. 
And just what a beautiful, beautiful night that was. And then also when we all got in a bus and went out to the countryside, and it was like we were in Hungarian cowboy country somehow, <laughs> and had this outdoor goulash dinner that was just wonderful and sang. And I mean, integral people have fun. Yeah. It's so great how you build that in. So I just want to yeah, point that out. Yeah, something similar this year. So we are going to have the, um, the welcoming boat party that you mentioned on the Danube River. But this time we are going to be one hour from Budapest to the west, at, as you mentioned, at uh, Lake Balaton. And Balaton is the, the largest sweet water lake, one of the largest sweet water lakes in Europe. Hmm. And um, it's actually the same size approximately as the San Francisco Bay. So if you know oh, the San nice. Francisco Bay, that is Balaton's side. And uh, the, the main um, beach town and holiday town is Sheofok. So we are going to, to be in Sheofok right on the lake shore you know, in a beautiful hotel. So we are going to use that. And the welcoming boat party on Wednesday evening is going to be on the lake. And the lake is, is very still and calm. So mm. there's a ser serenity, there is a peace, there is silence, uh, all nature around you. So last year we had the city experience and the bridges and the downtown lights on the, on the boat. This time we'll have a serene nature. And therefore we are going to have a, a small ceremony on the boat. And in that ceremony, uh, the beloved musician Sky Istvan will mm. appear and create a spiritual concert for us after the dinner. So we are going to have him and his, his uh, uh, spiritual band in the middle, and we are going to sit around them. So this is not a stage, you know, but this is everybody's on the floor and they're in the middle. So it will be pretty, I think, deep and, and touching for, for the participants. So that will be kind of setting the tone and opening the whole flow of the conference. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. And, and Jeff, I, I also I want to share that there is three or four major streams in this conference, Jeff, which is very significant. So under the umbrella of integral, and we, we mean the Wilberian integral world, uh, which, as we know, is very wide. So it's not just Cam Wilber, you know, stri strictly Cam Wilber people, but kind of an associative zone. But we demand that everybody, of course, knows at least, you know, to some extent, the Wilberian integral and relate somehow to it. So uh, besides the, the kind of Cam Wilber expert folks, there will be um, two other big kind of camps coming. One is the Spiral Dynamics people, and one of the keynotes will be Don Beck. And uh, since um, for us integralist is just so natural to talk in spiral language, right? Yes. Spiral colors or Wilbur colors or Wilbur levels. For us, it's really, really one family, one world. So we wanted to make sure that we have Ken Wilbur as a keynote, Don Beck as a keynote, like the like the the fathers of this movement, absolutely the contributors. So, so Don Beck is also having a keynote speech, and and uh, and the third. A big movement, which is fresh and very vivid, is the teal movement. So uh, since uh, Frederick Laloux uh, published his book, Reinventing Organizations, it just exploded internationally, you know, and there is teal everywhere in Europe, in America, in, in Korea, you know, everybody is kind of experimenting to, to recreate their companies uh, to, to teal and to collaborate in teal way. So it's so vivid and exciting that it became one of the key features of the second integral European conference. 
So we have a uh, we have a, a teal section, and each day two section rooms and two workshop rooms will be fully dedicated only for teal. And that means that this conference is also the first international gathering of the teal world. Wow. Sounds like you're integrating integral. Exactly. <laughs> Let, let's get the mainstreams together. Right on. <laughs> and how's that? Absolutely. Well, uh, anything else our listeners should know? Yes, two more interesting things. One is that, uh, as we know, one of the uh, most uh, well-received uh, lower right work in the integral world is circling. So we'll also represent circling. And uh, there, there will be kind of a circling workshop and circling will be invited also on the main stage to, to um, create this mutuality, help to create the mutuality love and, and authentic relating for the large crowd. And um, also the fourth stream, which I deeply respect, is, is, is uh, transpersonal psychology and Stanislav Grof. I don't know if you discovered because it's so recent, but Stan Grof is also... Uh, keynoting yes. via video conference um, in IEC. And uh, one of my students, um, uh, Rose, uh, Rose Kovács from Hungary, became the leader of the International Spiritual Emergency Network, uh, which is the, the le legacy what Stan and Christian and Grove created, the, the, the Spiritual Emergency Network. So we are going to invite the International Spiritual Emergency Network into the conference and Stanislav Grove and as we know, Ken Wilber emerged from the transpersonal psychology originally. Yes. So I see, uh, I see a direct continuation because Integral has the mission uh, of, of the transpersonal psychology as well to, to integrate spirituality with psychology and to basically uh, make spirituality acceptable and legal in the world. And that's what uh, basically the this inter International Spiritual Emergence Network and Stan Grof is working about. So we are also going to feature the spiritual side of the integral movement. Right on. Well, Godspeed, Bensei. That sounds like <laughs> a, a, a yeah. full agenda and you know, wonderful work. And thank you, I just Jeff. want to thank you so much for pulling it together. You will have a marble bust in the integral pantheon. Oh, howdy, Om, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, my friend. All right. Thank All right. you so much, Jeff. All right. Thank you, Bensei. And um, again, he's just the best. And um, I'm really excited to see what happens at this conference. All right, I wanted to end with a two or three minute poem from this 16th or 6th century Bed Bedouin poet, Labid. And it doesn't have a title, but it's um, a, just a wonderful slice of the sort of consciousness of red, that glory and juice and sexiness, really, of this stage of development. And see if you can find it in yourself as I read this poem. Labid writes, I am skilled to knot the bonds of friendship. That's K-N-O-T. I am skilled to knot the bonds of friendship. And I am skilled to break the knots of friendship, too. I am quick to be gone from places when they're unpleasing to me, unless, as happens, my destiny binds my spirit there. Ha! But you have no idea, my dear, how many nights of agreeable warmth 
delicious in sport and companionship, I have passed chatting. How many a taverner's hoisted flag I have visited, when the wine it proclaimed was precious and dear. And I forked out a pretty penny for the pleasures of a song on a wet morning, and for a charming girl plucking with nimble fingers the strings of her melodious lute. Yes, I've raced the cock bright and early to get me my spirit's need, and to have my second wedding by the time the sleepers stir. And many's the morning of wind and cold I've kept at bay, my swift-stepping steed, her bridle at dawn flung about my shoulders. I have climbed to a lookout post on the brow of a fearful ridge. I have come down to the plain. My horse stood firm as the trunk of a tail, as the trunk of a tall, striped palm tree. Then I pricked her on, to run like an ostrich and fleeter still, until, when she is warm and her bones are light and pliant, her saddle slipped about and her neck streamed with sweat, and the foam of her perspiration drenched in her leather girth. She tosses her head and strains at the rain and rushes on as a desert dove flutters with flight swiftly to water. As a desert dove flutters with flight swiftly to water. Thanks, folks. Always good to be with you. We'll check in with you next week to look at our ever-evolving world on The Daily Evolver. Take care. <laughs>